Hi, everybody. Our show is rated explicit for a reason. We have very unusual and disturbing topics that we discussed, as well as the cursing that will be either discussed about or part of the dialogue in certain stories we read. So please be warned about this, and we hope you enjoy. Violin Vice contains graphic and explicit content, which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Violin Vice. My name is Audie Griffith. I'm John John. Hello, and welcome to our very, very special Halloween spooktacular bonus episode extravaganza. Woo! <laughs> we tried for more titles, but we couldn't get all the credits. And we have a very special <laughs> guest joining us for a second time on this podcast. We so brought her back. We did. <laughs> we did. We figured the Halloween bonus episode was a great way to bring her back. So, Rachel, why don't you say hello? Hi, everybody. I'm happy to be back for this episode. Um, who doesn't love some good spooky stories? I know. Well, specifically me, but... Yeah. <laughs> I think you picked the wrong podcast, John. John. I am related to the host, so I didn't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, I kind of made him do that. Sorry, not sorry at all. Um, no, you're not. No, you're right. So, what is today's bonus episode about, guys? Well, we are telling campfire stories, spooky stories, that we know or may be reading, and hopefully you will get a chill out of them. I hope I don't. I mean, it's almost guaranteed, even when I read, but I'm hoping it's not as bad as some other times Audie has tortured me. Oh, <laughs> Hopefully there's no doll stories. That would be very appreciated. <laughs> well, I mean, by the time that this episode comes out, we would have just covered another one that should be really, really freaky for you. Yay. <laughs> So I'm kind of staying away from haunted doll stories, at least for this episode. But I have some family spooky stories because mom and dad just came and visited because I got engaged too. So they wanted to say hello. And then also mom's birthday. So happy birthday, mom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they were able to tell me some very spooky tales from our past and everything. So that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I just got some crazy stuff from the internet. <laughs> so, with that, are you guys excited and ready to get into it? Ready, yes, yeah, excited, let's get no. get started. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, who's starting this off? I'll start us off from one from our great-uncle Fran and Grandma Betty. Uh-oh. So, about 65 years ago, give or take, in the small town of Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, <laughs> our grandma and great-uncle lived on a farm just outside of Chippewa Falls. And the thing was, is this was right along uh, Indian Migration Trail, where the family 
our family would give them like bread and supplies as they were migrating past and right along their property and along the trail there is a whole bunch of Indian burial mounds and our uncle Fran like learned about these and learned that they were buried with not only themselves their horses their tools and a lot of their property and that there are these huge mounds like four feet in the air I guess I mean they're covered in dirt and about like six or seven feet long and there is quite a few of them on the property so after Uncle Fran learned about these one of the days he wanted to go like see what was actually in one so uh he took a shovel and an axe out from his tool shed and went up along the trail which was I don't know about a half mile away from the house and he found one of the mounds and he started digging and as he was starting to dig the wind just started to howl and get more and more powerful as he was going and then like a thundercloud kind of rolled in and it started to rain a bit and as he kept digging he was like okay like this is kind of bad the birds just started squawking and squawking and squawking and then he heard a noise and the trees and bushes were right behind him. And at this point, he's like, okay, I'm really, really freaked out. So he takes his axe and he puts an axe into the tree that's right by this mound. And he runs, hightails it home. And the next morning, he comes back out to this mound. And there are axes in all the trees surrounding the area, not just the one. And he heard another person behind the trees, and his dog was with him this time, and his dog got terrified and hightailed it back home. And as he was he hearing the rustling of someone coming, like, through the woods, he just hightailed it back home. And that was just one of the stories I was told. So, this was Uncle Fran. Yep. He decided to, on a whim, unbury someone who was buried. To see what was all buried in there. He thought this was a very cool thing. It was very disrespectful. Don't mind. Like, <laughs> don't mind you. Like, I know it was very disrespectful, but I don't uh, know if they knew it back then. But then the wind picked up. We didn't actually up, end up he... digging it up, though. No, he didn't. Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> he, but... he, he started to, and stuff started happening. Like, first the wind picked up, then the birds freaked out, uh, then a storm happened, <laughs> and then he... Heard somebody. It, and he just did, like, one X in a tree and then went home. Yep. But then he went back, there were X's on all the trees. Yep. Maybe somebody was watching him the whole time. Probably. It's... That's spooky. Yeah, that's freaky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's someone we know, John John. <laughs> or... Yeah, but they didn't kill him. No. Obviously. No, he's <laughs> yeah. Okay. Alright, so that is uh. my first one. Alright then. John John, do you wanna go next? Sure. First creepy pasta of the night. This one's called since when do mannequins bleed? 
Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Starts off pretty intense. That bastard Manny woke me up in the middle of the night. I absolutely hate it when he does this. This time, I guess he had a good reason to wake me up like that. I just wish he wasn't an asshole about it. Manny and I, we have a strange relationship, I'd say. Even our meeting was weird. He just appeared at my place one day. He was there, sitting on my couch, reading my copy of Dan Brown's Angels and Demons. I'll admit this much. His appearance at my place wasn't random at all. I can swear I've seen him looking at me as if admiring me from a distance for weeks before our meeting. It's hard to miss the guy. He really sticks out in a crowd, given his odd-looking head. Manny's appearance is mostly unremarkable. Other than what appears to be a pale, white, smiling mask permanently fused to the skin of his head. It looks like he has a purposefully deformed mannequin head stuck on his body, hence the name Manny. Somehow no one else has ever noticed him. Usually people write me off as mental whenever I mention him, which is why I avoid talking about him to others. When I saw him sitting on my couch like he owned the damn thing, my instinctive reaction was to get mad. I yelled something obscene and pounced on the couch with the intent to maul him with my hands. What came next scared the living hell out of me. I hit the couch and flipped it over, but the bastard was gone. He disappeared on me before reappearing behind me and letting out this distinctive, high-pitched chuckle of his. He said that he was going to play with me like a marionette and then vanished again. I just sat there. Flat on my ass, scared out of my wits. I had no clue what the hell had just happened to me. I'm still not entirely sure. It's been years now and Manny comes and goes. Whenever he shows up, I know it'll be one heck of a ride. He pops up and does his best to make my life just hell. Not letting me sleep by being an incredibly loud, unwanted roommate or by driving me nuts with his mostly moronic rants just before I go to sleep. Other times he shows up and just makes me feel like shit by giving me vivid accounts of horrible, horrible things about me and the world. His recollections feel as if he's feeding the imagery directly into my brain. I can quite see the horrors he's speaking of. Needless to say, that makes me feel terrible. I think he can even influence my dreams at this point. I swear, whenever I have a nightmare, I wake up to him standing at the edge of my bed, staring straight into my soul. Usually, these nightmares I think he gives me are events from my past, amplified and perverted into haunting scenes straight out of some horror flick. Other times, these nightmares are just distressingly weird things you'd not expect to see in your sleep. Like that one time when he made me dream of me viewing black and white footage of what appears the main street of some city devoid of people with this dramatic music playing in the background. The atmosphere of this whole thing felt incredibly off. But then came the true terrifying part. Singing. 
quite a cheerful singing came to flood my ears, forcing me to look around for the source of the sound. My dream self looked up, and above it, me, hung woman dressed in 20 outfits, swinging from the streetlights, lifeless, swaying softly in the wind, and yet singing cheerfully. I woke up in a cold sweat to be greeted by the pallid mug of that bastard. Over the years, he'd pull some nasty trick where he'd stand there in the distance, making sure I see him before pulling out a long black rod and, and stabbing himself, somehow, as in with some voodoo magic. I'd feel it wherever he stabbed himself, usually the leg. It hurts so bad whenever he does this. He seems to have this gleeful expression on his face, like he's enjoying the pain while I want to scream as a result of the sensation of a boiling hot metal rod slicing into my leg through my nerves. The first time was as shocking as hell. I've bitten so hard into my lip due to the pain, I now have a scar there as a reminder of that day. Unfortunately, I've come to accept it as part of my experience with Manny. That's not even the worst of it. The worst part about Manny, however, isn't this sort of stuff. Nah. The worst part is when he pops out of nowhere and lets out a thunderous roar straight into my ear before vanishing again. Whenever he does this, I tense up like crazy. It's akin to having a cannon shot going off right next to you. Sometimes I say, just stay tensed up for hours. Others, it goes away within minutes. After each encounter with Manny, regardless of what he does, I end up being stressed, vigilant and aggressive, and above all else, exhausted. Sometimes to the point of wanting to just throw myself off somewhere high, that's definitely affected me in more ways than one, hence why I mostly isolate myself from others. He's trying to ruin my life, I'm sure. I don't know why me. I didn't do anything wrong. I've always loved helping people. I didn't put on the uniform for the pay. I only ever wanted to do some good, you know? The closest I could be to being a superhero, I guess. Well... I was sure he was trying to mess up with me up until tonight. This time it was different. He woke me up by shaking my body awake. Seeing his ugly mug before even fully waking up gave me that adrenaline kick. I punched him square in the head. Although my first, although my fist never connected, it just went straight through his head. Hey, hold up, doll, he yelled as I pulled my hand backward, cursing under my breath. I'm here to help ya, he continued. I didn't believe him. He was just trying to mess with me again, I reasoned. So I tried ignoring him and going back to sleep. I shrugged him off and pulled a blanket tightly over my head. He shook me again. Oi, dolly, get up. Tis time I'm here to help, pinky promise. Fuck off, I barked, trying to 
drown his presence out of my head with some pleasant memories. Shh, still yeah, yeah, you shushed me. Something was wrong with that statement. Usually there are no others involved in his cruel jokes. I pulled the blanket from my head and looked him dead into his empty eye marks. What are you talking about? He mouthed, quiet down your tone. Huh? I questioned, confused and genuinely pissed off at this point. There's tree mannequins in your house. They don't mean no good, Dolly, he whispered. Bullshit, I barked back with a whisper. I don't even know why I was whispering, really. Listen for yourself, Dolly, Manny hissed, pointing at where his ears should have been. I did it as he said. It was dead silent. I was going to throw another fit at the creature that's been haunting me for the last few years, but then my thought process was cut short by the sound of footsteps. Two. Four. Six. My heartbeat sped up. I slowly got out of my bed, walked towards the bedroom door. I always kept it locked, even though I live alone. It's like an OCD thing. I stood by the door and listened. Someone was definitely walking around in my house. Three people, in fact. They were saying things I couldn't understand. They were too quiet. My breathing was becoming shallow, and my body was getting hot. I could feel my own temperature slightly rising. Manny whispered, Told ya. I just stared at him, and he took a step back. That had never happened before. Some switch inside flipped, and the bastard smiled at me. I just kept listening to what was happening outside the room. The pallid bastard opened up a closet and pulled out my two baseball bats before telling me to pick one. He knew what was in my head. He knew exactly what I was going to do. I took one of the bats, the black one, felt nice in my hand. Manny vanished. I cranked my neck at, and the door handle twisted. The door to my room swung open. Before me stood a literal mannequin. I could almost hear something snap inside. It didn't expect me to be awake. I moved swiftly, expertly, nearly took its head off with the bat. The sound of cracking thick plastic boomed in my ears. The mannequin collapsed to the floor. I went out to the hall. Another mannequin stood with his back to me, this one white. I think there was something attached to its plastic hand. I took a swing to its back, and it bent in half before collapsing on all fours. A second hit to the back of the head, it wasn't moving anymore. The third one saw me, a brown one. It ran towards the front door. I followed. It wasn't going to get out just like that. I caught up to it. It started making pleading movements with its arm. Ugly piece of shit. I slammed the bat on top of it. I swung once, twice, thrice. I swung over and over again. Even after it was crumpled on the floor with many parts collapsed on themselves. Once I was done with the third mannequin, 
Manny popped up again. He spat his poison in my ear again. Time up and dump him in the garage for now. I did just that. I wasn't even thinking on my own. I was on an autopilot. Good thing the front door was unlocked. The adrenaline wore off quickly, and I was exhausted once more, a completely worn out man. I headed up back to the, my bed, almost as if nothing had happened. I was pretty docile and relatively calm after that. I passed out on the spot, pretty much. Manny was nowhere in sight, thank God. I slept like a baby. Waking up this morning, I remembered what had happened the night before, and my mind raced again, forcing me to feel like the world would collapse on top of me if I didn't check the garage. The moment I got out of my bed, cortisol filled my system up once more. I noticed a massive blood stain on the floor. Since when do mannequins bleed? Written by Bloody Spaghetti. <laughs> Fitting name. Yeah. That was actually pretty spooky, and I'm actually surprised that you picked something with a mannequin in it. Yeah, I don't have any in my house, so that was part of the motivating factor there. Got it. And okay. I don't go to malls. <laughs> so, was he seeing, like, a ghost of a mannequin, or... I think they were actual people, but he just thought they were mannequins because that's what his hallucinations like him like it seems like a mix of like schizophrenia where they saw like a hallucination and it could be like that thing where you just don't recognize faces so they don't that's where my mind is thinking it was at but it's scary to think that they all were just mannequins Mm -hmm. instead of like a weird mental problem it's still scary to think that they were all just people, though, too, breaking in. Mm-hmm. Right. But still, the one that tormented the person for years just was there, then vanished, then there. Had a weird accent, which I did pronounce everything exactly as it was written. <laughs> so that was their accent. Interesting. So, yeah. But scary. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel's turn. (laughs) All right. Mine is much shorter than that. Um, But here we go. This one is called I'm Still Here. I came home pretty late one night and my roommate's bedroom was shut and I assumed she was sleeping already. But I saw something out of the corner of my eye in the kitchen. I said her name, but she didn't answer. I didn't think anything of it. So I walked into my room and before I turned on the light, Something whispered, I'm still here. I turned on the light in my room, but nothing was there. So I turned on every light in my house and knocked on my roommate's door and eventually opened it, but she wasn't there. So I left her light on too and slept with all the lights on. When she came back the next morning, I asked her if she was messing with me and she started crying and said she left because something was in the house messing with her and she had to get out. Whoa. Okay. I'm already afraid to, like, sleep alone sometimes, and I don't know. (laughs) 
I mean, I live by myself, so (laughs) thanks for that. (laughs) Well, if you start hearing things. Uh, Talking to you. I'll pretend it's the cats. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, they don't have to be that long to freak me out, I guess. (laughs) Fantastic. Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) The next one, John John you should know or at least have heard of once or twice from mom and dad telling it. Mm-hmm. But do you remember the tale of the dead man's swamp? I remember to avoid said swamp. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so a little background information before I get into this story. Our cabin that John John and I grew up in had a couple swamps nearby. One that was down by the driveway what had stagnant water was not really by the lake and was called Dead Man's Swamp. At least that's what our family called it as Dead Man's mm-hmm. Swamp. Smelled awful, looked very, very creepy, it was in like this little valley between the hills. And on cold nights, it would be usually the source of where most fog was coming from. Yes. And of course, it was just right next door. Mm-hmm. So when I was really, really little... Mom and Dad told us the story of Dead Man's Swamp. Originally, how it started was during a war, a battle was fought there, and one of the men there died in that swamp. I mean, classic, classic tale of somebody dying. Uh, Pretty gruesome death. And it was said that this man would then haunt and try to get revenge for his death this swamp so anyone who would come near it whether it be a man woman or child would slowly get dragged into the swamp and be drawn towards it and it was said that the fog was him doing this so one night this one little girl I mean, our parents probably changed the gender when they were telling us the story, but... uh, Might have been, but still. Yeah. So, the way I remember it is, one night, this little girl was drawn to the swamp. It was a full moon, and she thought it was really, really pretty. The fog was just glazing over the swamp, and the stars were out. She took a midnight stroll, and as she was walking down by the swamp, the fog sort of slowly creeped up towards her feet and she just thought it was really really pretty there's this nice tree that overlooks the swamp where you could sit and sort of relax and just gaze upon the stars and that's where she wanted to go stargazing and as she's walking towards the tree the fog starts to tangle in between her feet a bit more And she's not too worried about it. I mean, fog usually happens every now and again. But as she's walking closer and closer, this fog is getting more and more dense. And she hears someone call her name from back where she was walking from. And she tries to turn around, but she finds that she can't. Her legs are now stuck. She can't go back. She can't go side to side. All she can do is move forward. She starts calling for help, but the fog at this time is all around her. And so she goes the only direction that she can go, 
forward. So as she's walking closer and closer to the swamp, the fog is so thick she can't see anything. She starts screaming and screaming for help as the water starts getting up to her knees. And eventually she can't go any farther and she's stuck in the swamp. And that's when the fog starts pulling her down. And that is the tale of the dead man's swamp. Yeah, I remember it now. Yeah. Not gonna say good times. No, it was probably just a story to keep us out of the swamp, if I'm being honest. But it still was really, really scary. Like, I always kind of vision just, like, when the fog was, like, when you're right at the edge, the fog essentially turns into just ghostly hands and just grabs your ankles and pulls you. Yeah. That's probably more what it was. But I just told how I remembered it. But... Yeah, still, though. Yeah. But once we were an adult and had plenty of alcohol in our system, we would walk by that all the time. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a good place to walk by. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that was one of the spooky ones I remember. Creepy stuff. Yeah. Ooh. I guess as long as it kept you guys out of the swamp, I mean. I mean, swamps aren't sanitary to swim in, so. <laughs> no, and we did have two of them right by our cabin. Mm-hmm. It was always just, like, gross if we fell into the swamp off the side of the rickety pallet bridge like very patchwork (laughs) it was it was sketchy but the cabin itself was a really fun place and a good time Mm -hmm. of course always with a campfire you have to have one scary campfire story yep (laughs) yep hence tonight's episode guys yeah so the next one then is called string theory which I feel all of us can appreciate since we are all science people. Have you ever had an experience that suggested someone else was in your house and just thought, I don't want to know, and left it? Sometimes fear of the unknown just seems like the preferable option than facing a real concrete danger. Normally it's nothing, though. One time... The beeper function on my wireless house phone went off when I was the only one home. I could only be called from the living room. Another time, I swear someone took some change from my desk. They're all probably just slightly disconcerting tricks of the memory. But what would you do when something truly suggestive happens? Would you run or just ignore it like I did? Last Monday was a normal day. I got up, brushed my teeth, changed into school clothes, all little parts of my morning ritual. It seemed like it would be another totally unnoteworthy day until I saw the strings. There were three or four thick twine strings in my room. They crisscrossed between the walls around my bed, one attached to the the door, 
No way would I have missed them before. I should have tripped over them. They were tied to pins in the walls, which had also not existed before ten seconds ago. Nobody could have been in my room while I was in it, let alone set this up. It was early, and my brain wasn't processing correctly. I simply discredited the site, untied the strings, and left for school, leaving them balled up on my desk. It didn't get any better later. Outside my house, there were hundreds of them, tied between houses, around cars, across streets. They had to be some super elaborate prank, one of those hidden camera shows or a comedy improv blog. They had gotten everyone else to play along too. Passers-by were tangled in them, tying them to objects they were walking towards and away from, as if they had been and were continuing to follow the course laid out for them. I nervously continued my journey to school. On the bus, everyone except me was tied to the door. At school, groups of friends were tied to each other. Teachers were tied to their desks and boards. Oddly enough, at this point, all I could wonder was why I had been left out. When my friend Lucy sat beside me in first period, she simply plonked her bag down on my lap and rested her chin on in her hand, looking right past me to the window outside. Hey, Lucy. No response. Come on, I didn't expect you to be in on this, too. She sighed and started taking books from her bag. All the books were tied to her hands. I grinned and yanked one of the strings off a book. She didn't seem to notice, instead simply disregarding the book completely, letting it drop to the floor without a moment's hesitation. Um... I leaned down, picking up her book and placing it back on her desk. She took no notice. Well, if that's how we're going to play it, I smiled, trying to look playful, but really just trying to hide my nervousness. I bundled all the strings attached to her together with one hand, then pulled them all free. She blinked, turning to stare at me. Holy crap, Martin, you're like a ninja or something. I've been sitting here for maybe 10 minutes. I smiled again, relieved my friend had finally noticed me. Where did all these strings come from? She gasped, seemingly noticing for the first time. I assumed you were all fucking with me. She stood up, backing into a corner. No one else in the class noticed. They weren't here just a minute ago. Do you see them too? Her tone made it clear she was genuinely scared. No, didn't you? I was interrupted by my teacher slamming the door behind her. Everyone except me and Lucy murmured a good morning, and still, no one seemed to pay either of us any notice. People have been ignoring me all day, I said to Lucy, before turning to our teacher. Hey, dumb bitch, you can't teach for shit. No reaction. I'm getting away from all this shit. Lucy pulled a few strings aside and left the class. I followed and, surprise, surprise, no one else noticed. We wandered the corridors, 
leaving and entering classes as we saw fit. Whenever we were untied a chair or a book from someone else, it was like it suddenly didn't matter to them. It didn't exist. I showed her the street outside. There were more strings than when I came in this morning, twice as many. We carefully picked our way through the tangle, making our way to a nearby coffee shop. Not particularly grand, I know, but what would you do in our situation? As I said, fear of the unknown sometimes seems like the safer option. On a few occasions, I suggested we untie a few more people. Lucy was opposed to it, remembering how terrified she'd been. In the coffee shop, we grabbed a couple of sandwiches and drinks from the fridge. We found a table, untied all strings attached to the chairs, and sat down. We both ate in silence, both of us too scared, both of us distracting ourselves by watching the strangers in the shop, oblivious to the strings. After 20 minutes, Lucy spoke up. Now she's going to take that sandwich, she said, pointing at a woman across the shop. Sure enough, she walked to the fridge and took the plastic wrap sandwich she was tied to. She pays for it and leaves. She did so, according to the prophecies of the strings. That guy doesn't intend to pay. I watched as a man took his coffee and ran out of the store. The two servers just looking too exasperated to go after him. This is horrible, she whimpered. Let's go, please. Outside wasn't much better. Everyone just followed the string's instructions. Going about their daily lives, Lucy announced she was going home to sleep this off, and I agreed to walk her home. She only lived ten minutes away. Away from the busier part of town, there were fewer strings. It was nicer. We could pretend it wasn't happening. When we turned onto Lucy's street, she stopped, her mouth falling open. Why now? I broke the silence, my voice sounding surprisingly small. Look, she pointed outside one of her neighbor's houses. I saw it clearly, and I'll take my memory of that moment till the day I die. A little dark imp, maybe three feet tall, walking along with its knuckles on the ground, almost like a monkey. It had two bulbous yellow eyes, taking up about half its face and no mouth or any other facial features. It was holding a hammer and a ball of twine, which it was letting out behind it. It walked quickly and quietly from the front door of the house to the mailbox. It stopped, hammered a nail into the side of the box, and tied its string around it. It turned to face us and stopped when it spotted us. My bottom fell out even further than it had already been, but it just stared with a look of surprise and curiosity. You could almost say it was the more frightened one. Suddenly, it beckoned to us with its tiny hand. I looked at Lucy. She hadn't moved. I looked back at the imp, which just stared at me. I halved the distance between us, and then halved it again. This wasn't fear of the unknown anymore. It was fear of this little guy. Didn't seem like anything to be scared of. 
when I was a meter away from it, it, it extended its hand. Uh, hi. I shook it and nodded in approval, blinking its massive yellow eyes up at me. So you're the ones in charge of the strings? It nodded eagerly. I called Lucy over, but she stayed where she was. There are more of you? Another nod. I wanted to ask it so many questions and what it was and where it came from, but it seemed for now I was stuck with only yes or no questions. Do we even have free will? It just looked at me, almost sadly. I immediately felt sick to my stomach. I couldn't bear looking at the little monster anymore. I grabbed Lucy, who had been listening to our ex exchange, and now sat on the curb with her head in her hands. Come on. We entered her house, and I made her a cup of tea. When I found her in the living room, she had untied her dog and was curled up with it, crying. I set the tea down and sat beside her. I'm so scared, she whispered after a good ten minutes of sobbing. I didn't answer. I couldn't. I'm going to sleep, she mumbled suddenly. It was under within the minute. Sleep was starting to sound pretty good all of a sudden. My eyelids suddenly felt like they were being weighed down. I collapsed to the rug, and the last thing I heard before I fell asleep was the scurrying of several sets of little feet nearby. I felt much better the next day, as if the whole affair had been a dream. I'd probably have believed that if I hadn't been awoken by Lucy's mother that morning, wondering what I was doing sleeping over without permission or something. Over breakfast, Lucy asked me why I looked so pale and nervous. I turned to her and smiled, mumbling something to her about feeling sick. But the truth was, I was scared because I couldn't see any strings and was wondering whether my actions were truly my own. Written by Tesla. Nice car brand. Not the car brand. <laughs> it's a username. <laughs> So that's more of an existential dread. Yeah, no kidding. Mm -hmm. Again, spooky. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was more of like on the philosophical type weirdness. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. I don't even know what to say about that. I don't know. It's just, huh. All right, then. <laughs> All right. <Cool. laughs> well, again, mine are shorter than yours, so... That is okay. <laughs> okay, so the next one I have is called Always Look Under Your Bed. My great aunt lived way out in the boonies by an old southern prison. This was before most people had TV, so she had been listening to the radio and found out that a violent rapist had escaped from the prison nearby. She walked into her bedroom and had one of those old saggy mattresses and felt something under the bed. She said something didn't feel right, and she slowly got off the bed and called the police. When they arrived, they found the rapist under her bed, holding a knife from her kitchen. He told them 
He had been waiting for her to go to sleep so he could rape her and then stab her to death. The end. Spooky. <laughs> well, that's unpleasant. It's, it's a like... little unsettling. Like, how do you even sleep after that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just... That's like Princess and the Pea, but extreme. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you feel? I mean, maybe we just have pretty good mattresses now, but, like, I would never know if somebody was under my bed. Yeah. Mm. I just keep my bed very low to the ground and have no space underneath it. So <laughs> if someone was underneath my bed, it'd be very noticeable. <laughs> It'd be a big lump. <laughs> well, I'm glad so you I'm would safe. know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't test that at all. <laughs> You're prepared. Yep. Definitely. Oh. All right. Audie next. So this one is actually my last one. But... I wanted to retell a story written by Alvin Schwartz, and it's illustrated by Stephen Gimmel. And we've read these stories on many a rainy night at the cabin, and mm. they are scary stories to tell in the dark. Those books. Yeah. Oh. So this one is the most memorable, in my opinion, and at least the oh one that God. got me the most. And John, John, you cannot spoil it, cause it is so good. So the hook was on the door handle in the morning. That was a good one. I don't care what. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this one's called Clinkety Clink. There was a lonely old woman who got sick and eventually died. She had no family and no close friends, so her neighbors got together and dug a grave for her. They asked the undertaker to make a coffin for her, and they dressed her up in the best clothes and laid her body out in her living room. When the old woman died, her eyes were wide open, staring at everything and seeing nothing. This disturbed the neighbors so much that they found two shiny silver coins on her dresser and put them on her eyelids to keep them closed. As was the tradition at the time, they held awake so that people could come by and pay their respects. Their neighbors lit some candles and sat up with her corpse so that she would not be alone. The next morning, the gravedigger arrived to collect her body and take it to the cemetery. When he was about to start digging the grave, he opened the coffin and peered inside. When he saw the silver coins covering her eyes, he immediately snatched them and stuffed them in his pockets. Looking down at the dead woman, a chill ran down his spine. Her wide, open eyes seemed to be staring up at him, watching him as he stole her silver coins. It gave him such a creepy feeling, so that he grabbed a hammer and quickly nailed the lid on the coffin shut. Then he buried her as fast as he could. When the gravedigger got home, he put the two silver coins in a tin box and shook it, listening to the rattle sound that it made. Try as he might, he couldn't forget those eyes staring up at him. He placed the tin box on his mantelpiece. That night, 
It grew dark, and the wind started to blow. The storm shook the house and rattled the windows. A cold wind whistled through the cracks in the walls and down the chimney. Bzz, bzz, bzzoo, it went. Bzz, 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 bzzoo. The gravedigger threw some more wood on the fire and jumped into bed, pulling the covers up over his head. The wind kept blowing through the cracks. Bzz, bzz, bzzoo. The fire flared and flickered and cast evil-looking shadows on the walls. Lying in bed, the gravedigger couldn't stop thinking about the dead woman's eyes staring up at him. As the wind blew stronger and louder and the fire popped and snapped, he began to get scared. Suddenly, he heard another sound. Clinkity, clink. Clink, clinkity, clink. It went. Clinkity, click. It was the silver dollars rattling in the tin box. Hey, shouted the gravedigger. Who's stealing my money? But all he heard was the wind blowing. Bzz, bzz, bzzoo. And the flames flaring and flickering and snapping and popping. And the coins going clinkity-click, clinkity-click. Shaking with fear, he flung off the covers and sat up in bed. Looking around, he couldn't see anything. He leaped out of the bed and barred the chain at the door. Then he went back to his bed, but his head had barely touched the pillow when he heard clinkity-click, clinkity-click. Then he heard something way off in the distance. It was a voice crying, Where's my money? Give me my money. And the wind was blowing, bzz, bzz, bzzoo. And the fire flared and flickered and snapped and popped, and the coins in the box kept shaking, clinkety-click, clinkety-click. And the gravedigger was really scared. He got out of bed again and piled all the furniture up against the door. And he went out and got the heavy iron skillet over the tin box. Then he jumped back into bed and covered his head with the blankets. But the money rattled louder and louder than ever, and the voice way off in the distance cried, Give me my money! I want my money! And the wind blew and the fire flickered and popped and snapped and popped, and the great digger shivered and shook and hollered out loud, Oh, lordy, lordy! Suddenly, the front door flew open, scattering the furniture, and end walked the dead woman that he had just buried. Her eyes were wide open, staring at everything and seeing nothing. And the wind blew. Bzz, bzz, bzzoo. And the money was still shaking. Clinkety-click, clinkety-click. And the fire was flaring and popping and flickering and snapping. And the ghost of the dead woman cried, Oh, where is my money? Who took my money? And the gravedigger moaned, Oh, lordy, lordy. The gravedigger watched in horror as the woman came closer and closer, her hands groping the air, as if she could hear the silver coins in the tin box going clinkety-click, clinkety-click. Her cold, dead hands groped around, trying to find it, and the wind went bzz, bzz, bzzoo, and the money was rattling and clinking, clinkety-click, clinkety-click, and the fire was still flaring and popping, 
and snapping. And the gravedigger shivered and shook and moaned, Oh, lordy, lordy. And the woman cried out as she got nearer. Give me my money. Who's got my money? And suddenly she jumped on the man and said, It's you! God. Audie just literally attacked me and I jumped. That's part of the story. It, it is right into <laughs> the story. <laughs> Might be why Audie remembered she it so much. She gave me a fright. I was really trying to hold my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for not ruining that, knew John. It was John. I knew, and if I was there, then I would have just <laughs> did that deadpan. You're not, not going to do that to me. Oh, that was my favorite one growing up. Yep. Um, I was getting all worked up, and then she spooked the me. Up. The buildup was important to that. It's, yes. That's part of the story, and... I'm glad you got to participate. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're just glad it wasn't you. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But yeah, if you haven't read Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark by Elvin Schwartz as a kid, I highly recommend them, especially this time of year. Such a classic. Mm-hmm. Love there it. are several of them, too. So several of those kind of books. and I think we ended up having all of them at some point. I'm pretty sure we did, yeah. We yeah. just enjoy them so much. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. We it, were like second grade when we were getting into <laughs> that stuff. It was a family hobby that we would tell on rainy days. It just made sense. Also, probably what built my fear or my love of like fear and scary stories. So, might be why I'm so freaked out by them. <laughs> might be <laughs> two different outcomes. <laughs> yeah, crazy stuff. All right, so my next one is called Dead Cats. Uh Uh-oh. Years ago, when I was a senior in high school, I had a day where I wasn't feeling too great. So I decided, as as I occasionally did, to skip out on my last two classes and head home. That meant no school buses, obviously, so I would just walk the three miles home. Before the age of computer cell phones, this was a pretty long, boring hike to take. So I decided to take a shortcut through some small wooded trail along the creek. Eventually, I came across a dead cat lying in the middle of the trail. As I walked around it, I noticed another dead cat to my left. Looked to my right, and sure enough, there was another. Creeped out, I looked behind me and noticed two more, and yet another two in front of me. They were all laid out in a giant circle with one in the middle, almost like a half-assed pentagon. I, sp- I sped up my pace and got the hell out of there. Never took that trail again. Thinking back, a-, a really weird thing is that there was no visible damage to any of the cats. No blood or cuts, just dead. I think that person walked across some sort of pagan ritual. Yeah. I don't like that. <laughs> no. Nah. I don't either. So, like, why were they arranged want- in a pattern? Uh, I don't know. It's almost like Game of Thrones, like body parts in the scenes. Mm. You have yet to see Game of Thrones. I keep on forgetting that. (laughs) Yep, never seen it. Me either. Ha, you guys are missing out. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I like Peter Dinklage, but that just seems too Mm. depressing. 
I like happy shows. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Do you have any more stories, Rachel? You can go for it. You sure? Yep. This is a freaky one. (laughs) I know. I'm so excited. This is like my favorite. Okay. This one is called The Russian Sleep Experiment. Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based stimulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake so the gas didn't kill them, since it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed-circuit cameras, so they had only microphones and 5-inch thick glass porthole-sized windows into the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, cots to sleep on but no bedding, running water and a toilet, and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners, deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, having been promised falsely that they would be freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversations took on a darker aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were, and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternately whispering to the microphones and one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think that they could win the trust of the experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects in captivity with them. At first, the researchers suspected this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber, repeatedly yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising thing about this behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather, didn't react to it. They continued whispering to the microphones until a second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared page after page with their own feces and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering to the microphones. After three more days passed, the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were working, since they thought it impossible that no sound could be coming with five people inside. 
The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume at a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced, We are opening the chamber to test the microphones. Step away from the door and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase in a calm voice respond. We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out among the researchers and the military forces funding the research. Unable to provoke any more response using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. The chamber was flushed of the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air and immediately voices from the microphones began to object. Three different voices began begging as if pleading for their life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. The chamber was open and soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever and so did the soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although no one could rightly call the state that any of them in life. The food rations past day five had not been so much as touched. There were chunks of meat from the dead test subjects' thighs and chest stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of the water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. The destruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth, as the researchers initially thought. Closer examination of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most, if not all of them, were self-inflicted. The abdominal organs below the rib cage of all four test subjects had been removed, while the heart, lungs, and diaphragm remained in place. The skin and most of the muscle attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs through the rib cage. All the blood vessels and organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor. Fanning out around the eviscerated but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could be seen to be working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent that what they were digesting was their own flesh that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operatives at the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber and alternately begged and demanded that the gas be turned back on lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, 
the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Rustin soldiers died from having his throat ripped out. Another was gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off and an artery in his leg severed by one of the subject's teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives if you count ones that committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but this proved impossible. He was injected with more than 10 times the human dose of a morphine derivative and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arms of one doctor. When Hart was seen to beat for a full two minutes after he had bled out to the point there was more air in his vascular system than blood, even after it stopped, he continued to scream and flail for another three minutes. Struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeating the word more over and over, weaker and weaker, until he fell silent. The surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved to a medical facility. The two with intact vocal cords continuously begging for the gas, demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room that the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative they had given him to prepare him for the surgery. He fought furiously against his restraints when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a four inch wide leather strap on one wrist, even through the weight of a 200 pound soldier holding that wrist as well. It took only a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under. And the instant his eyelids fluttered and closed, his heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subject that died on the operating table, it was found that his blood had tripled the normal level of oxygen. His muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were badly torn and he had broken nine bones in his struggle to not be subdued. Most of them were from the force of his own muscles having exerted onto them. The second survivor had been the first of the group of the five to start screaming. His vocal cords destroyed, he was unable to beg or object to surgery and he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought near him. He shook his head yes when someone suggested, reluctantly, they try the surgery without anesthetic, and did not react for the entire six-hour procedure of replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. The surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it would be medically possible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times whenever his eyes met hers. When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, 
The surgeon had a pen and pad fetched so the patient could write his message. It was simple. Keep cutting. The other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthetic as well, although they had to be injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation. The surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation, while the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared their system in an abnormally short period of time and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak, they were again asking for the stimulant gas. The researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves, why they had ripped out their own guts, and why they wanted to be given the gas again. Only one response was given. I must remain awake. All three subjects' restraints were reinforced and they were placed back into the chamber awaiting determination as to what should be done with them. The researchers, facing the wrath of their military benefactors for having failed the stated goal of their project considering euthanizing the surviving subjects, the commanding officer and ex-KGB instead saw potential and wanted to see what would happen if they were put back on the gas. The researchers strongly objected, but were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling the moment it was let slip that they were going back on the gas. It was obvious that at this point, all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. The mute subject was straining his legs against the leather bonds with all his might. First left, then right, then left again, for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired for EEG, most of the researchers were monitoring his brain waves in surprise. They were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined inexplicably. It looked as if he were repeatedly suffering brain death before returning to normal. As they focused on paper, scrolling out of the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut at the moment his head hit the pillow. His brainwaves immediately changed to that of deep sleep, then flatlined for the last time as his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject could speak started screaming to be sealed in now. His brainwave showed the same flat lines as one who had just died from falling asleep. The commander gave the order to seal the chamber with both subjects inside, as well as three researchers. One of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point-blank between the eyes, then turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed as the remaining members of the medical and research team fled the room. I won't be locked in here with these things. Not with you, he screamed at the man strapped to the table. What are you? he demanded. I must know. The subject smiled. 
Have you forgotten so easily? The subject asked. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all. Begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researcher paused, then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. The EEG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out. So nearly free. Author unknown. I've never heard that before. Really? Really. Oh. I am, like, freaked out right now. Yeah. It, like, the first two years that I had heard that, I actually thought that was a real thing. Oh, I thought. I thought it was. It's not. No, no, no. It's no. Creepy pasta. Oh, it is. God. It is a story. Like, oh my god! It, it sounds so real, well. though. Yeah. So it's just, it's just like there's a reason I thought it was real until somebody explained to me that no, that's just made up. Yeah. Well, it kind of sounds like, well, it just reminded me of like the Stanford Prison Project or whatever. Yeah. Mm. You know. So yeah. it's like it sounded like it could be a real thing. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like. And it was during that time where there was a lot of questionable medical experiments done. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's Freaky a good stuff. One. I good. know. You had me on the edge. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> well, can't wait to go to sleep tonight. A.K. You're probably welcome. won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not going to get experimented on by Russian scientists or anything. That's what you think. <laughs> I'm suddenly very concerned for you. <laughs> <laughs> Anything can happen in your dreams, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. There's something there that I want to address, but I really don't think I should. Okay. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my god. <laughs> I want to sleep tonight. <laughs> yeah, that's probably for the best. Just don't think about the mannequins. Don't think about the strings. Don't think about the Russians. Don't think about... so. You have a lot to not think about, like, with the swamps. Don't think about the coin lady after she attacked <laughs> That's probably going to be the hardest one to forget. Yeah. Why did I agree to this? <laughs> I don't know, but thank you for going over, <laughs> Oh, jeez. Audio yeah, doesn't feel bad at all. No, that you're you're noticing that she's is ruthless. It's true. Like, I'm usually the only one on that end of the stick with that stuff, but at least now I have someone to empathize with. This is great. Guilty pre- uh, pleasure is scaring people watching scary movies going to haunted houses, but you won't ex- you like you wouldn't expect that from me. But it just is. Freaking freaky stuff. <laughs> happy Halloween. Yes, yeah. happy Halloween, guys. <laughs> and I hope you guys really, really enjoyed our very special Halloween spooktacular bonus episode extravaganza. Woo! <laughs> <sighs> 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 
<sighs> yeah, try sleeping tonight. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Freaky. <laughs> yeah. So, guys, since this isn't our regular episode and it's a bonus, I won't do our usual plugs, but just a reminder that we are going to take the next two weeks off. And we will be back on a regular schedule with our episodes weekly on November 18th. My birthday. Woo. Hooray. Yes. But I will be out of the country, and so I can't edit and do episodes. So we are taking this short, small break. So, you guys enjoy your first couple weeks in November, and I hope you had a really happy Halloween. And, Rachel, thank you again for visiting our podcast. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. Thanks for joining Any... the trauma club. Oh <laughs> gosh, I'm there. I'm in it. <laughs> and, and this was just so much fun. So hopefully we can do this yearly, have a spooky campfire stories bonus episode. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just no dolls. <laughs> just no dolls. You're the one who brought them up. Yeah, but it's still... <laughs> They leave scars on the inside. <laughs> oh, all right. So have a good week, guys. We'll see you in two weeks on November 18th. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Violin Vice. Cover art is by Audie Griffith. Music by Annabelle Reback. If you want to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash violinvice. Or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to. This helps us move up the charts and also helps keep the spooky stories coming. Thank you.